Hey, welcome to episode six of the Learning to Preach podcast. I'm really excited about this episode because this is some stuff I've culled over years that I really need personally, and I hope it helps other people have a lot less pain in preaching than I've had as you learn how to preach gospel-centered sermons. So what I want to give you is uh, six angles, six ways to get the gospel into your sermon. Um, So I started about a decade and a half ago trying to ask the question, how can I make sure that I put the gospel in in a way that fits with the text? What are all the ways that I can find that people talk about how to do gospel-centered preaching? I was coming out of a tradition at that time that was very biblical, but tended to be a little bit moralistic in how it uh, approached preaching. I just wanted to get better at gospel-centered preaching. So I've read a lot of texts and a lot of books and listened to a lot of lectures and paid attention to a lot of people, and I've culled these six things. I, I, I need to give credit to, I'll try to give credit every place where I need to give credit because these are not from me, um, but I've found them really, really helpful. So here they are. Uh, six ways to get to the gospel. Number one, we can ask this question. How does this text reveal God as a redeeming God? Um, in other words, if a text doesn't explicitly mention Jesus, let's think about the Old Testament in particular, where you know Christ is being foreshadowed and prophesied about, but the ministry of Christ is still unclear and a little cloudy. How does this text show us God as a redeeming God? So think about the book of Exodus as the most clear example, the one that Old Testament consistently looks back to. What does Exodus show us? It shows us that God is a redeeming God, that he wants to deliver his people from slavery and into promise and freedom. That's the 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 foundational vision of God as a redeeming God. In lots of texts in the Bible, we see God as redeemer, God acting on behalf of his people to set them free, to liberate them, to redeem them. So we can ask, how does this text I'm looking at reveal God as a redeeming God? Another way to ask it is this, how's God the hero of the story? Uh, How's God the one who uh, comes out at the end as the hero, the one who has accomplished redemption? Here's a second question. This one's obviously a little simpler. How does this text connect to the ministry of Jesus? Where do I see the ministry of Christ in this text? And these tend to be in texts that focus a little bit more explicitly on the ministry of Jesus. Let me read you a helpful quote from Brian Chapel. He says, as long as a preacher explains, uh, or sorry, he says this, how does this text predict, prepare for, reflect, or result from the ministry of Jesus. How does this text predict the ministry of Jesus? So let's think about Isaiah 53. Okay, pretty obvious. It's, it's, it's pointing to the ministry of Jesus. How does it prepare for the ministry of Jesus? So think about all the minor prophets in the Old Testament and all the failures of the people of Israel that they're recording. Why are they telling us so many times about how God's people have failed to come back to Him? Because they're preparing us for the one who is the true and greater Israel, right? They're getting us ready for the ministry of Jesus. How does this test reflect the ministry of Jesus? So, for instance, in a book like Leviticus, where we see a lot of the sacrificial system and blood sacrifice, okay, well, obviously, that's reflecting for us something that's going to become a lot clearer as we understand Jesus' death on the cross and as we see those atoning sacrifices in the midst of the one who is our true atonement. Uh, How does this text result from the ministry of Jesus? So think about all the New Testament epistles and how are they showing us what comes out of, what are the implications of, what are the results of the ministry of Jesus, all right? So that is a good question that's pretty obviously centered on the work of Jesus. Uh, Here's a third one, indicative imperative. I I borrowed this from Brian Chappell, but it's sort of a foundational uh, part of Reformed preaching. 
Every text that tells us an imperative, here's what you should do, is always rooted in an indicative. Here's what God has done. So if I'm preaching a text that has a clear, people should live like this, people should do this, people should be like this, I need to ask the question, okay, how do I preach this imperative grounded in the indicative of what God has done for us in Christ, all right? If you don't preach the Sermon on the Mount this way, you end up with a Sermon on the Mount that's very social gospel and we should all be good people like Jesus says, but that fails to ground the Sermon on the Mount in what God has done in Jesus to make all of this possible. So indicative imperative is a third helpful category. A fourth category, resurrection, joy, and power. Think about the book of Acts. Think about the growth of the early church. Think about the courageous witness of the apostles. What made them that way? What turned these fearful, cowardly, half-hearted disciples into these amazing preachers of resurrection? Well, it's the joy and power of the Holy Spirit that comes on the heels of Jesus' resurrection. So as we're preaching the book of Acts, we're not just looking for the cross. We're looking for, hey, how does the gift of the Spirit, how does the new experience of living on the other side of the resurrection bring a joy and power into our lives that motivates us for courageous witness? That's a, that's a part of what Christ has done for us and a part of what He has purchased for us. Uh, fifth, how do we see Jesus as the true satisfaction? Think here about a book like Ecclesiastes that's raising for us, hey, guess what? Wealth, money won't satisfy you. Sex won't satisfy you. Success won't satisfy you. I sought all these things. I, I made myself pleasurable. I found out they were all vanity. How does this point us to Jesus as the only one who can truly satisfy our deepest longings? In texts that raise the possibility of satisfaction but seem to fall short, or in, in texts where we see people trying to find satisfaction for human longings and we realize it never quite works out, how does that point us to Jesus as the only one who can truly satisfy, who can truly refresh us? Um, and finally, the greatness of Christ. How do we see in this text the wonder, the beauty, the power, the greatness of Jesus. Think here about a book like Hebrews, where the whole book is about Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than uh, Melchizedek. Jesus is better than everyone who's ever lived. He's great. He's mighty. He's beautiful. How do we see here the greatness of Christ? And how do we call people back to the greatness of Christ? What I want to convince you of is that any text you're preaching in the Bible, you ought to be able to find one of these six paths to get to the person and work of Jesus. And here's why this is really important and why I want to do everything I can to equip you as a preacher to have these categories. Because the mistake I see most common in preachers that want to be gospel-centered, and Kevin mentioned this in a previous podcast, is we preach a sermon and then we put Jesus at the end of it. So it's sort of like, here's my sermon on whatever text in the Bible. I'm going to tell you all the things I need to say. And by the way, you should trust in Jesus. Jesus is the only way to be what God wants us to be. Okay, great. Here's the problem. What you just told me about Jesus as the answer doesn't connect to any need or problem raised in that text. So it's like Jesus is this appendix to the book where it's like, hey, thanks for reading my book. Also in this appendix, I want to mention Jesus is great. That's nice, but I can get the point of the book without reading the appendix. The whole reason the appendix is there, it's like extraneous material that might help me, but I don't really need it to understand the message of the book. That's how a lot of sermons that purport to be gospel-centered or Christ-centered can end up being. They end up being, Jesus is tacked on at the end. He's important. We know he's foundational. We want to talk about him as preachers, but it's not always clear how we're getting him from the text that we're preaching. What, what these six things should give you are really intuitive ways to connect the person and work of Jesus 
to whatever text you're preaching because that text is going to raise one of these things. Now, I don't think these are the only six ways of doing it. And I'm not even saying these are the six best ways of doing it. I'm just saying these are six that I've found helpful. What I have on my hard drive is this list. And man, anytime I'm preaching a sermon and I'm a little stuck on, all right, how do I show the power and beauty and glory of Jesus from this text? I usually pull it up and go, all right, there's one of these six things in the text. Where is it? How do I find it? And how do I make these connections? Um, so I think these are six, call them six angles Six ways of getting to gospel-centered preaching. Six ways of making sure that a sermon from the text you're starting from communicates well the beauty and the glory of the gospel and and centers on the person and work of Jesus. Um, Let me come back and say a few things and then kick it to you guys as well. Uh, The other mistake that I think we tend to make, so one is Jesus as the appendix. The other one is this. We think of the gospel only in the category of justification by faith. So we're, we're great at preaching the gospel when we're preaching Romans or when we're preaching a text that clearly is related to sin and atonement and forgiveness and our need for salvation. So in any text that, meant, you know, you're preaching Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you were dead in sin, but now you're alive. Okay, great. I guarantee you can fit the gospel into that text because it's really explicit right on the surface. The problem is the gospel is much more than justification by faith. So if you're preaching Esther or Job, or Ecclesiastes, or Proverbs, or Psalm 1, I need you to show me Jesus in that text. And the way to do it is not to say, hey, Psalm 1 talks about this fruitful tree planted by streams and then chaff, and by the way, Jesus, right? That's not the way to preach Psalm 1. What you want to show me in Psalm 1 is, how does this text connect to the ministry of Jesus? Show me how only by trusting in Christ can I actually live the life that John or that Psalm 1 is telling me to live. How do I see Jesus as the true satisfaction, the one who really lets my life be like a fruitful tree planted by streams of water? You've got to show me from that text where Jesus is and not just try to get to justification by faith. And so the, the reason this first one has been helpful to me, this is from Brian Chapel, and he helped me see, hey, all of Scripture is telling us that God is a redeeming God. Whether Jesus is explicitly mentioned or whether Jesus is just foreshadowed and hinted at and sort of teased at, all of Scripture shows us God is a redeeming God. If if your only category for the gospel is justification by faith, you will have a very narrow way of preaching the gospel. If what you start to show your people is, hey, the gospel is our God redeems sinners by grace, that is a much bigger category, and you can find that category in any text in the Bible. And that's what I want you to to embrace is that preaching the gospel does not merely mean preaching justification by grace through faith through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Yes, it means that. But the gospel is much bigger and fuller than that. And so in a text that doesn't explicitly mention atonement or that doesn't explicitly mention forgiveness or that doesn't talk about the work of Jesus on the cross, you can still get to the gospel the nature of God's redemption, the reality of human fallenness and finiteness as we talked about in a previous episode. These things are central to the gospel message and we need to proclaim the gospel in all its fullness in whatever ways a text of scripture allows us to. So these are six categories that hopefully you will find helpful. Uh, Guys, let me kick it to you and just say, let's interact with these a little bit. What's helpful, what's not helpful? Where would you add more color to this? Well, I would just, I'd want to start off by saying I appreciate the permission that this gives communicators to look at the, <clears throat> the wide breadth of the gospel. I know for myself, 
you even said justification by faith and then like substitutionary atonement. Those were themes that really resonated with me early in my, in my faith. That's really what drew me to Christ. So I almost early on in communication tried to smash that into every sermon because it meant something to me. Um, that's not a bad thing, but when you, when you try to just hit that same chord over and over again, you miss the, the, the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the resurrection of Christ, joy and power. And I like the, uh, I like the breadth of diversity this gives, a lot of tools in the toolbox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that first one especially has been helpful for me. Like you mentioned, Bob, Old Testament passages were just, how do we zoom out and see the whole character of God? And Jesus fulfills so much of God's plan of redemption for us, but there's all those different chords that you can strike on throughout the whole Testament. I also think just thinking through different world cultures is helpful too, as you think about because the way you're describing justification by faith is a pretty Western way we think, and mm-hmm. obviously a lot of us are preaching in Western context. But how does how does Jesus t- and how does God remove our shame, like the whole honor shame paradigm, yes. or um, how does how does I think the resurrection joy and power gets after this? How does God give us the kind of power that we in a way long for in a lot of ways, but we don't need to mm-hmm. find find it in our own expressions, you know? Well, and to go back to what we uh, talked about last time with those three keys to a good sermon: resurrection, joy, and power. Think about how many places in the life of the average Christian, the disconnect is actually, I long for the fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life, but it's not there the way I want. It's not that I disbelieve that Jesus died for my sins. It's that I'm, I'm missing some aspect of Christian virtue. Show me how the resurrection, show me how the Holy Spirit, show me how uh, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension gets me something that I couldn't have otherwise and answers some of those longings and questions. That, this is part of how we get to those places of tension for the average Christian because uh, we want to help people see, hey, the gospel answers all of our needs and longings. It's not just a door we walk through at the beginning of the faith. It, it's the path on which we walk as God's people. Uh, and so we need to embrace all of the ways that Jesus, through the fullness of his ministry, including the sending of the Holy Spirit, um, helps us live in joy and power and victory. The thing I appreciate about this is it's not only a holistic way of understanding and getting to the gospel, but it's also a holistic way of communicating to the people that are in front of you. So. Meaning, uh, you're not just addressing the whole gospel, you're also addressing the whole person. Which sometimes, depending on your context or your tradition, you might only be speaking to a part of what it means to be human and missing whole categories of a person's existence and being if you're not getting beyond justification by faith. Which again is really essential. Um, but, I, but I think having come from a background in a tradition that really emphasized justification by faith, often tagged on to the end of a sermon, that come to Jesus moment, I personally found it some, in some ways very liberating to have these categories. Like, oh, wow, this is beautiful and breathtaking and I want to get there. But in some ways, I felt a bit of apprehension because there's this nervousness of, Am I getting it right? Like, am I actually still preaching the true gospel? How do I know I'm not very enough course? So what would you say to a person who feels that kind of tension of, I want to be here, but I got to take that first step? Yeah, right. And this is where, I mean, you know, one of the 
classic tools for those of us to learn to preach in this way is Tim Keller and Ed Clowney's lectures from RTS years ago where they sort of do this full treatment of expository gospel-centered preaching. And that kind of overwhelmed me because those two guys are so brilliant at doing that. You, you look you'll get two of the best people in our lifetime at doing this work, and I kind of felt like I don't even think I can do any of that. So, here, so Brian Chapel was the guy that gave me freedom, and here's what he says in his book, Christ-Centered Preaching. Here's what it means to preach a gospel-centered sermon. It means to relate every text to our human need for redemption and to God's provision of redemption through Jesus. That's preaching the gospel. Do I show you in this text, you need redemption, and God has provided redemption in Jesus? Even if I do that in clunky ways, I'm preaching the gospel. Um, so, so it just helped, it freed me a little bit to say, okay, that fallen condition focus that we talked about in a previous episode, that's the human need for redemption. That's helping me say, okay, here's how this text shows us our human need for redemption. And then as long as I'm helping you see God's provision of redemption in Jesus, as ham-handedly as I might do that, as awkwardly as I might get there, as long as I'm getting there in a sermon, I'm preaching a gospel-centered sermon. Now I can just work. So now I, now I don't have the fear anymore of like, am I leaving something out? Now I can just work on refining how am I doing that? Am I doing it well? Am I doing it creatively? How can I continue to build my toolbox for this kind of preaching? And that's what I'm trying to give you here is more tools. But that helped me. Chapel's thing relieved a lot of tension for me. I was just like, all right, as long as I'm showing people, here's how you need redemption. Here's how God has provided it in Jesus. And see these things in this text. Then I'm... I'm preaching a gospel-centered sermon, a grace-driven sermon. I don't intend to be um, to start any sort of conflict, but I've heard some people give the feedback to sermons where, hey, if you if you don't get to the cross, you're not preaching the gospel. Yeah. If you don't proclaim the resurrection, you're not preaching the gospel. Yeah. Um, almost this, if you're not doing a comprehensive treatise yes. of the gospel, you're not preaching the gospel. Yeah. There's some truth in that, and then it seems like we're also trying to give permission for something else. Yes. Uh, and I, I think there's a... Here's how I would want to nuance my answer to that question. If I sit in your preaching for four to eight sermons, and you never mention Jesus' death on the cross, his entombment, and his resurrection, I'm probably uncomfortable. If you mention that three out of six sermons and the other three you get to some aspect of God's redeeming promise in Christ, I'm great with that. You see what I'm saying? So I think, I think actually what we want to focus on is what's the character of my preaching over time or of the pulpit of our church? So what I try to help us think about is, hey, what's the pulpit of Quorum Deo? Are we faithfully representing the gospel? Man, anytime we can talk about atonement, death, resurrection, let's do that. But man, let's also talk about God as a redeeming God. Let's talk about the story of Scripture, God liberating His people. I always want to see people, I want people to see Jesus as the answer, Jesus as the hero. I don't feel a need every single week to walk them through that entire storyline. I do want to do that as frequently as I can. So I try to treat that a little less as a prescriptive and more as a, yep, it needs to be represented in my sermon. I always want to think about, hey, if one of the old Puritans showed up at Coramdale on a Sunday or if Jonathan Edwards showed up at Coramdale, he probably wouldn't think like, man, these guys are amazing preachers. They're as good as me. But I hope he would think, oh, they're preaching the gospel. You know, and so it helps me to read Christians from history and just say, hey, if I can reasonably imagine John Chrysostom or John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards or you know, any of these old Puritan saints or divines sitting in the congregation and going, 
I recognize that as the gospel. I feel pretty good about that. Um, so I hope that's an appropriately nuanced answer to the question. I don't. I personally do not every single week mention the whole narrative of Jesus taking our place on the cross, being put in the grave, staying there for three days, rising from the dead, sending the Spirit. We do want to say that as often as we can, but I don't do it every single week because I feel like as long as people have that flavor in our preaching, they also need some of these other categories of God's redeeming grace, uh, the nature of God as a redeeming God. You know, this past Sunday, I just keyed on God as a, God, a radically forgiving God. That was the nature of the unmerciful servant. Is this, this is designed to show us God is lavish in his forgiveness. And it's Christ that makes that possible. Mm-hmm. It's helpful for me to think about, like, why would we do gospel-centered preaching in these six angles? And it's like, it's because we want to essentially effectively give the gospel to people. We want and Christ I, to be at the center of the sermon. Right, and we want people to be converted to Christ. Yes. And we want people to be renewed to Christ and yes. walking with Christ. And so almost having a lot more in your bullpen and more pictures in your bullpen to think yeah. about it. Like, I can think of non-Christian friends and family who a couple of these bullets have resonated with them and they might not be able to put on the atonement yet right. to the answer to that. Right. But they're actually winsomely being like invited back of knowing like, I'm actually like provoked that you said Jesus's resurrection gave me the new power to actually go towards what I want and actually give me what I actually need, like tapping into the human need of yeah. the gospel. And so almost seeing it expands my view and understanding of conversion, knowing that there's yes. this instantaneous moment, but talking to several people in our church, they can point back to three or four different sermons where we highlight, like, I was just impressed with Christ in a new way. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's a win, yeah, right? Like, as a people, non-Christian, like... We want people to worship Christ in every sermon. And I, I, you're probably also tapping into there, Ryan. I have a little more of a long-term vision of how people are going to come to Christ in our church. I don't imagine it's going to be in one sermon. I imagine it's going to be over time. And so what I want to do is tap enough things in their life over time where they see Jesus as the answer to enough of their questions that they start to go, you know, last time I came, you were talking about forgiveness, but this time you're talking about virtue. And the next time I came, you're talking about like my longings. And I see how Jesus is the answer to all of those things. I, I just don't imagine that in any one of those moments, somebody's going to get converted to faith. I imagine it's going to generally be over the course of time. And I just think, well, that relates to something we'll talk about in a future episode, which is just the nature of the secular age we live in and the need for people to have lots of points of contact where the gospel resonates with their story. All right, so these are six ways that you can make sure that you're preaching the gospel. I hope you find them helpful as you do sermon prep. We'll see you next time for the next episode.